is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Professor Benjamin Friedman. Benjamin was the chairman of economics at Harvard and is currently a professor teaching political economy at Harvard. He is the author of several books, including his most recent one, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. So, uh, Professor, thanks so much for being with me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. Absolutely. So I want to start off here, basically, you know, one of the reasons I enjoy speaking to seasoned economists and economic historians is you've been studying this stuff for a long time and you've been you know, around for quite some time. And so you have sort of the dual advantage of, of having learned a lot through your research and, you know, through your life experience as well. Um, and we are in a interesting time that a lot of people can't really make sense of in, in the world economy and the U.S. economy, particularly as we come out of COVID record levels of, of debt in the United States. You see this in other places in Europe and Japan. We have basically highest levels of inflation in nearly half a century. And we, earlier this year, we had two negative quarters of GDP growth. Yet, you know, anecdotally, when you go to restaurants, when you go out, when you, when you go to um, malls, it doesn't really seem like we're in some sort of you know, dubious financial situation as of this moment. Things are still pretty busy. The unemployment rate doesn't seem to have gone up dramatically, at least not yet. So a lot of people have had different theories about what's going to happen. What's your sort of outlook on the economic situation, particularly in the United States, where things seem to be going, if there are any, and if there are any sort of historical corollaries that you draw on that reminds you of where we are right now? I would distinguish three different time frames for addressing the set of issues that you outline. In the short to modestly medium run, I think the dominant issue for the American economy is going to be the battle to get inflation back down to something more acceptable. I deliberately put it that way because whether we do or do not get all the way back to the Federal Reserve's 2% target is something we can talk about. But whether it's 2% or something different, we certainly are going to be headed into a period of lower inflation than what we've got now, and the transition from where we are today to that lower inflation is not going to be smooth. So that presents a whole set of issues that bears on your question about whether we're in a recession, what that would look like, and so forth. In the more medium uh, run, after we get that problem solved, I think there are all sorts of threats around the world which are going to impinge on the U.S. For example, what is going to happen in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Is that simply going to peter out? Uh, is that going to fester for a while? Uh, many Europeans that I talk to are very afraid that it's going to do neither of those, but uh, get out of hand. Well, I certainly hope that doesn't happen. But there are all sorts of threats to the international economic order 
to put it that way. And then in the longest uh, time frame, one going beyond that, uh, I think there's a very serious issue with uh, how the uh, advanced economies around the world, but I'm interested primarily in ours because I'm an American, uh, how we and other advanced economies will adapt to evolution of technology, by which I mean automation, artificial intelligence, and the like. I don't think that's an issue for next year. I'm not sure it's an issue for this decade. We could well get to 2030 and uh, pay no attention to that. But I think even within the balance of my lifetime and certainly within the balance of yours, I think it could well be that the automation artificial intelligence changes are going to be the dominant ones uh, people will pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So that's three sets of issues, and maybe that's more than you wanted in response to your question about the current situation, but that's how I see it. No, that's perfect, actually, because that's all three of those have sort of you know, those different timelines had different uh, basically, consequences with respect to the short and medium term, you qualify inflation by an acceptable amount. We've typically been used to, you know, the, the target of 2% from the Fed. It seems like some people are budging off that. I think it was Chairman Powell who said maybe you know, 2% isn't the target anymore. Do you see that maybe something along the lines of 4 or 5% might be a new norm for quite some period of time? I do not think so. I think four or five is too high. But let me say clearly that I am one of the economists, and there are many, who have thought for quite a while that 2% is too low a target. The reason for thinking that is that at a 2% target for inflation and with real interest rates as low as they have become, there is too great a probability of the economy getting stuck at the zero or near zero lower bound for nominal interest rates. We never thought that was a possibility in the United States until the big financial crisis of 2008, 9, 10, and then the aftermath of it. But we got stuck at the lower bound for 10 years, and therefore conventional monetary policy just wasn't available. Federal Reserve had to turn to bond purchases and other types of ways of getting uh, the economy stimulated. This was not a good uh, prospect. Now, the 2% target was adopted by most economies, most major economies around the world 30 years ago. Think of that 30 years ago. So the question you want to ask yourself is, was a target that was the right choice of 30 years ago the correct choice for today? I would say no. We don't even have to relitigate whether the people making that choice 30 years ago got it right or not. Uh, Whatever you thought was the correct answer 30 years ago, surely you would pick a higher number today. And I don't believe the American public would be comfortable with a 4% or much worse 5% inflation rate. But I do hope we settle in at something that's near 2 for reasons that have nothing to do with economics, but everything to do with the politics, I think Chairman Powell will be very reluctant to stand up anytime soon in public and say, hello, American public, hello, members of Congress, we have just changed the target from two to three. I don't think that's going to happen. But I think if we settle in at something like a 3% inflation rate and people implicitly figure they don't want to pay the economic cost of pushing it all the way down to two, 
and we live with something like 3% inflation for a while, and then finally we accept 3% as the target, I think we'll be in a better place than if we pushed all the way back down to two. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the rising interest rates are going to be the trend for at least several more quarters? Do you think there's any limit to how much they can increase interest rates given, you know, some people say, you know, we're pretty limited given how much debt we have. We can't do a 1980s, you know, Volcker situation where he was able to rise quite dramatically to shrink down inflation because we have a lot more debt this time. What do you make of that argument? Uh, I don't think that argument is very persuasive. Remember that the average maturity of the outstanding treasury debt in the United States is more than six years. So the debt is not being refinanced very quickly. And indeed, I would turn the argument that you were quoting on its head. I would say, if you're concerned about the potential implications for the debt service obligations of the U.S. Treasury, what you want to do is have a short bout of interest rates, however high is necessary, to get the inflation back down quickly. Because, to repeat, the mean maturity of the outstanding debt is six years. So not much if we go to a period of very high interest rates, which I hope we do not have to do, but if we do, then not very much of the debt is going to roll over at those high interest rates as long as they don't persist very long. I so I would say that if I were um, wanting to make an argument along the lines that you outlined, and you are not the only person I know who is concerned about that, I would say to uh, Chairman Powell and his colleagues, that's a reason for pressing ahead very forcefully. Do what you have to do now. Get inflation down. Get get it over with before too much of the debt rolls over. Do you think that's likely to happen? I hope so. I, I don't know. I can't be in the business of predicting what the Federal Reserve will do, but I believe that uh, Chairman Powell and his colleagues are pretty serious about wanting to get inflation down, to repeat from a moment ago, not necessarily all the way to two, but certainly sharply down from where it is now. And I believe they fully understand that some amount of slowing of the economy and unemployment, presumably something that uh, would be labeled a recession, is necessary. Look, it, it's not impossible to achieve what the press calls a soft landing and get, a, get inflation down without having a recession. It, it's possible. But the historical experience of central banks around the world, not just the United States, in getting a significant inflation under control without uh, having a significant economic downturn, that's not encouraging. That's not something, it's not that it can't happen, but uh, the force of history tells you that is not something you want to bet on. And I don't think uh, Chairman Powell and his colleagues are betting on it. I think they understand the history, and I think they understand that what they're doing is going to slow the economy, and I think they have gotten to a position of being comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very insightful analysis. So then if we go to sort of the more medium term, here's another thing I want to ask you about. We touched on that a little bit, but the more medium term we're looking at after we're, we're done with this sort of bout of, of inflation, what we're dealing with economically, some of the, the more medium term trends to longer term trends, a lot of people talk about deglobalization. You see 
especially with these issues that we're having with China. And they obviously haven't helped things with their lockdown policy and also Xi clamping down on a lot of the economic freedoms that were starting to to increase. You know, he sees a lot of these uh, billionaires and tech moguls in his own country as threats. So he's he's put the hammer down, sort of reversing course on their economic you know, liberalization that's been going on for a couple of decades now. And I saw even Apple, who's basically the most exposed to China of any of these major companies, reining back some of their manufacturing. So a lot of people think that one of the future trends is going to be going away from China, maybe reinvesting into manufacturing or supply chains here, a resurgence of American manufacturing. I see both parties even really uh, signify this. Biden recently had the CHIPS Act, which was this real uh, death knell to China's high-tech industry because of all the advanced microchips and products that they're not going to be receiving now. Do you see that a potential resurgence in American manufacturing and these deglobalization trends occurring? Let's take your question in several parts. First, is there a risk of deglobalization? Uh, I think there's a risk. I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, we've had um, some periods of deglobalization before. They have not been good for the world, either economically or uh, in uh, political terms either. Uh, there was a huge period of globalization, increased globalization from the middle of the 19th century up to World War I. That was a good period in all sorts of ways. And then there was a period following World War I for some decades in which uh, globalization moved the other way, and in all sorts of dimensions, that was a bad period. We don't want to go back there. So, first place, uh, deglobalization is a risk, not a good thing. Now, uh, are we headed there? I have to admit to you that I did not see coming the tightening up in China, and I still don't quite understand why uh, Mr. Xi is doing this. The best analysis I've heard, we're, Frank, we're now getting into the realm of international politics, not uh, economics, so I'm tempted to say this is above my pay grade, as they would say in the Navy, but um, the best analysis I've heard, we're, Frank, we're now getting into the realm of international politics, not uh, economics, so I'm tempted to say this is above my pay grade, as they would say in the Navy, but um, the best analysis I've heard is that Mr. Xi is very concerned about the threat to Chinese economic stability from their over-indebted position. We all read in the newspapers about the real estate sector in China with, uh, what's the what's the name of the firm? Ever, it's ever, 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 yeah, we read about that, but also uh, state, I mean, not state, but their local governments in China are very, very uh, over-indebted, uh, lots mm -hmm. of their industry, so it's a fragile uh, yeah. environment, and there are people I know who know a lot more about China than I do who believe that she seems, she sees uh, bad economic times coming in China, and he's tightening up in order to make sure that he doesn't lose control when that happens. Well, let's suppose that's true. Uh, this does not spell good things for globalization. Uh, we haven't yet mentioned the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict, which I didn't see coming uh, either, but I can tell you that uh, Europeans, by which I mean not Ukrainians, but Western Europeans, 
are very, very uh, worried. Uh, I've, uh, I talk a fair amount to a number of well-placed uh, Germans, for example, who are in uh, quite substantial positions of economic responsibility there. And it's quite interesting to me, even though the responsibility is in the economic sphere, when you talk to them, what they want to talk about is the military risk of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the risk that it will spill over to the West. They talk about Moldova. They talk about Poland. Uh, these are risky times. And that, again, is a risk to the kind of globalization that you and I are talking about. Now, what would happen here in the U.S. if we do enter a period of world deglobalization? It is quite possible that we would have some resurgence of American manufacturing, uh, although for reasons that uh, now verge into the third of the topics that I raised earlier, namely automation, I would not be optimistic that that would create a lot of manufacturing jobs. There's a difference between thinking our manufacturers are going to produce a lot of stuff and sell it successfully and at a profit, and thinking that they're going to employ a lot of people on the assembly line. That's very different. I was giving a talk a few years ago in a Midwestern city. One of the um, people, uh, you know, a quite successful uh, businessman who was there at the lunch, was making comments and talking about uh, all of the increase in production that his manufacturing company was enjoying. And I said, oh, that's terrific. How many new people are you taking on? He said, no, 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 no. He said, we don't, we don't take on new people. That's not what we do. We produce. Well, I think keep that in mind. And with the new technology, these are likely to be smaller manufacturing plants than what you and I think of from years ago. They're likely to be very, we would think of them as understaffed compared to our image of manufacturing from years ago. So it is entirely possible that if globalization goes in the wrong direction, uh, a beneficiary could be the American manufacturing sector, but I do not think that will create a lot of manufacturing jobs. Right, right. So I think your point about automation actually really speaks to the the further likelihood that deglobalization happens because, you know, speaking about China for a second, Xi and the CCP are concerned about their own you know, dominance over the society and, and their own survival over, obviously, the economic uh, success of their people, right? They're, they only had economic liberalization in order to basically win over support of their people and, and make things calm so that they could do everything else they wanted. But as, as soon as, at the end of the day, they're going to choose their own survival over economic prosperity. And so I think that's definitely part of it. Also, obviously, he's being he was being challenged. And you saw this with the whole Jack Maul situation where they basically, you know, he, he made this very innocuous criticism about the, the, the countries, how it's run. And that was enough to basically put the kibosh on him and, and make him into a hostage. Uh, so you see that challenge as well, which they don't like, because now these billionaires, which China didn't have before, are becoming so powerful, they're a threat. So at the end of the day, they need to do, from Xi's perspective, they're going to do whatever ensures their survival first and foremost. Uh, and then you also have the demographic situation in China, which basically these last 20, 30 years, they had a huge percentage of the population was under 30. And now we know because of the one China policy, their demographics are completely screwed up. And so those workers won't even be there in the numbers they were before to work those factories. And then on top of that, you had, you know, as we saw with COVID, so many, so many of our critical industries were reliant on ingredients from China. And so that got a lot of people thinking, well, you know, that's pretty crazy. Like 
every generic drug is, you know, basically is is from China or uh, is dependent upon China's cooperation. So I think that's part of it as well. And then when you get into the automation stuff, it's like, well, as China's demographics are decreasing, which make labor costs increase in their country, now there's not even so much of a, of a cost benefit on top of all the other uh, issues that China presents now. So it's like, oh, or we could just hire, you know, we could just get these these robots, these uh, artificial intelligence, high tech equipment to handle the job that like we used to pay three Chinese laborers to do, who aren't even that cheap anymore to begin with. So I think that's part of it as well. And then one of the major trends in the United States, obviously, we became energy independent uh, fairly recently, a few years ago. This current administration isn't a fan of our of our fossil fuel industry, and so there's there's issues there. But overall, it's going to be hard to basically not have the fossil fuel industry being a significant component of our energy system. So we don't care as much about the Middle East. And on top of that, we don't care as much about China. We're not as dependent on them. And so maybe that changes the calculus, not only for us, but for, for other parts of, uh, of the world as well. One of the things we talk about with automation, too, is, you know, the argument has always been new technology. Yes, it destroys present industries, right? We don't have uh, elevator operators anymore, for example, but it creates new jobs. Why do you think automation and AI are going to be different? Uh, well, let me, let, me, let me first react to a few of the things that you said before. I'll just uh, pick a couple of them. Uh, one, I think you're absolutely correct that the ability to maintain rising living standards in China has been central to their ability to hold the economy, and not just the economy, but the country together. I mean, in some respects, the challenge they face is even more fun. And everything you said about the uh, demographics in China is quite correct. Their, the, their working age population is now shrinking. It's, uh, it's begun. But their challenge is even greater and more fundamental than what you suggested, because remember, here is this enormous landmass strung out over seven, I think, maybe more than seven time zones. Right. The population does not all speak the same language. You know, if, if you're a resident of Beijing and you go to Guangzhou, you can't yeah. understand them because in Beijing they speak Mandarin and in Guangzhou they speak uh, Cantonese. Mm -hmm. So think about the challenge of holding that enormous uh, landmass and population together as one country. And when you talk to the Chinese, when I talk to the Chinese, that's always what's on their mind. They are always afraid that the thing will fracture as it has threatened to do on a number of occasions uh, before. And frankly, I think that's for them uh, the source of loyalty to the Communist Party. Uh, the, the Chinese don't give a hoot about communism in the sense that Marx and Lenin, Lenin right. wrote about. That's, that's not on anybody's radar screen. But they are very worried about what would happen if they go back to something comparable to the warlord period they had years ago, where the country, in effect, splits up. They don't want that. So I think you are quite right. She understands that keeping the... Uh, standard of living rising is central to their ability, not just to keep the, his party in control, but to hold the country together. So I think that's absolutely correct. Now, moving on to the automation, I think it is going to be a challenge. You're very right 
that people have been worried about this for at least 200 years, going back to the Luddites of the 18 and 10s in Britain, the, the people who went around smashing up the new looms and all of that stuff in the British textile industry. So I think people who share the concern that I have have to be able to address the question of why is this time different. And I think uh, this time is different uh, in two respects. One is that the um, the technology is now starting to render redundant uh, labor across a much broader swath of economic activity than was ever before the case before. You know, we think about the uh, automation as let's compare a Tesla factory floor to uh, a Henry Ford factory floor. It's actually fun to do that. You can get videos, and when you look at a video of Henry Ford's people making uh, Model A's or whatever it was 100 years ago, what what you notice is how many people there were crammed in altogether. And when you look at a video of a Tesla, you can get these online. When you look at a video of a Tesla plant, uh, what strikes you is that there are no humans to be seen. You see this car being put together, but there are no humans. It's not just that. Uh, it is across a whole range of uh, activities. Uh, I gather you're a lawyer. Yes. Okay, you're a lawyer. Uh, think about how legal research is done today. Uh, there are all sorts of things that 20-odd years ago you would have had paralegals running around your office doing. You don't need that anymore. I hope you don't have that anymore. Uh, think about corporate accounting. I'm on uh, the you know variety of uh, corporate uh, boards and have been for years. And over the years, I've served on audit committees. And <clears throat> we look at what the auditors do. An enormous amount of that is now uh, automated compared to years ago. So we're not just talking about uh, high school educated blue blue collar folks uh, standing in the. Uh, on the assembly line, we're talking about people, some of whom have college degrees, who have certain expectations of the standard of living that they not only aspire to, but think they have a right to. Um, think about other high-paying jobs. Uh, in, in the U.S., historically, the highest three high-paying jobs for people with high school educations only were factory floors. Well, we just talked about that. Construction. I think construction. There is jobs are going to be safe for a yeah. while, but there are only about only about five million of those in the whole country out of a labor force of 165 million. So banking on the on the five million construction jobs is not going to be much of a safety. And then the third one is truck drivers and people who drive for FedEx and uh, UPS, for example, those are high-paying jobs for people with a college education. Well, think about uh, what those jobs are going to become uh, as we move. Uh, I don't take seriously driverless uh, trucks. I don't take seriously the notion that the packages are going to come around with being delivered to your house by drones. Yeah, regulations are going to delay that way before the technology is even ready, yeah possibly within your lifetime, surely not within mine. But even so, think about what the driver in the FedEx truck is going to do. Uh, he isn't going to be steering the truck uh, on his own. He isn't going to be plotting the route from one, uh, one um, 
stop to the next. Uh, and, he, and he, you know, that's already done for him the same way when, when you get in an Uber, you can see the device. The, the Uber driver isn't deciding how to get where you're going to go. So what's what's the FedEx driver going to do? Here she's going to be sitting there when the uh, truck pulls up in front of your house. The person will grab the package, run it up to your front door, or if you live in a condo, going to run it into your mail room, get back in the truck. And while the truck is speeding off to the next uh, destination, the person is going to punch the picture icon that says that the package was delivered to your porch or your mailbox. Now, think about that a minute uh, and put yourself in, uh, think about it from an economic perspective. This is now going to become a job that requires a skill set yeah. comparable to, think of it as what the checkout guy at the McDonald's does. He yeah. doesn't need to know anything. All he does is punch the picture icon that says you bought the cheeseburger. Yeah. And so you know that over some period of time, these jobs that have been very highly paid by the standards of non-college educated people are going to devolve down to um, McDonald's type wages. This is not good. Now, at the same time, of course, there will be some other folks whose jobs will become more productive, more interesting, more remunerative. So what we're going to see is this continual bifurcation of the labor force. Uh, some people call it a hollowing out of the middle of the labor force in which uh, some people, I would guess, is to put a number on it, let's say a third of the people are going to have better jobs and uh, the other two thirds are going to move in the wrong direction. This is not good for society. Uh, and that's very scary for our politics as well. I mean, you know, driving a truck, a UPS driver, something of like that, it's a tough job. You know, you, it's, they're hard to drive those trucks. It's a lot of stress. It's, uh, you know, it can be mentally taxing the amount of hours you drive. And then you're reducing that to, to being basically a greeter at Walmart. And you're going to be compensated, obviously, a lot less because of that. And, right. you know, I had to, just a couple of things that are just kind of funny. I had to laugh. You mentioned China has seven time zones, but did you know there's only one time zone in all of China? Like the, the CCP just... Yes, that's correct. Yes, I did, I, I did know that. They artificially put it all on one time zone. Yeah. But, but now ask yourself, why do they do that? It's again because they want to impose a they want to impose a sense of, of unity mm -hmm. on something that is uh, not naturally or geographically naturally a unified country. Yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. So I assume some places in China must get all the way in the uh, the western region. It's probably like what, it gets dark at like three o'clock in the winter. It's it's wild. It must. Yeah. I mean, just think about the fact that I'm I'm in Boston. You're in L.A. So that's three hours difference. Yeah. And Americans learn to live with that. But imagine it was seven instead of three. Yeah, no, that's crazy. And and you know the, the bit about when you, you know there's so many different languages we often forget this. You know, China and Russia are very diverse places, both of them. And uh, you know when I was in Hong Kong. The, the, you know, the taxi driver would speak to the other, uh, you know, the Chinese passenger in English because, you know, one speaks Cantonese, one speaks Mandarin. Yeah, that's right. Uh, a Hong Kong, uh, a Hong Kong uh, taxi driver will speak uh, Cantonese. Right, right. And, and a visitor from Beijing will speak Mandarin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it's just funny that, you know, sometimes we'll sell in English or oftentimes. Mm -hmm. So one of the other things is that the baby boomers who are the biggest generation of all time up until the, the millennials, my generation, they're going to be retiring and mass numbers this next decade. How do you see that affecting 
some of these prognostications you have with automation. So for example, so boomers come out of the workforce, which I'm sure many millennials and Gen Z will be happy about. Uh, that's going to have to open up some jobs. Yes, okay, so some of them get you know, taken by automation. Um, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is boomers are a substantial portion of, of the wealth of this country. And that also means that they also, while they're working, have been very, very much interested in investing in some of these like high growth, high potential return investments, right? And so we, we saw this record S&P and NASDAQ these last several years. And a lot of that was driven by baby boomers who, you know, were investing money, get better and better rates of return. When they retire, they're going to have to be much more reticent about how they invest their money. They're going to be much less likely to invest in some of these startups that fuel economic growth. How do you see the baby boomers getting out of the workforce affecting things economically, both from an you know, automation perspective, as we said, now that they're freeing up jobs, and also you know, a lot of that investment is, is going to go away because they need to secure their retirement? I'll make two comments. One, of course, you're right that a lot of retirements will ease the automation AI problem that worries me. I suspect that uh, many of these people will not retire very early, however, uh, because indeed will retire late uh, because they have not accumulated much wealth. You are right that the baby boomer generation as a whole has accumulated a lot of wealth, but it's very highly concentrated. Yeah. And one easy statistic to keep in mind is that roughly half of all people who receive social security checks to a first approximation, live on that only. Social security is all they have. Why? Because they don't have any saving. Mm -hmm. Now, a different part of the population says, well, where was their 401k plan? Where was their uh, pension? Whatever. Well, the answer, where was their uh, savings account? The answer is they didn't have that. So a lot of the baby boomer generation is going to be right up against it, I think, on uh, whether they're able to retire and whether they're able to maintain their standard of living once they do retire. So I don't I, I think that's true. Now, turning to the other people who are the ones that you have in mind, the ones who did accumulate a lot of wealth, there is a big wealth transfer about to happen uh, over the next uh, 20 years, 25 years in the United States. There are people, many economists, who think this will exert downward pressure on asset prices. Uh, their image is that uh, people of, uh, call it my age, are going to be selling their houses to people of, call it your age. And because there are going to be so many people of my age and not enough people of your age, Uh, There's going to be more supply than demand, and the house prices will go down. And you can tell a similar story for all sorts of assets like stocks. I know people who worry about this. Uh, It is very hard to pick out patterns in the data looking back when these generational demographics have been a major influence on asset prices. Uh, at, At one level... It's hard to believe they're not at work, but this may be one of these situations in which, to use a favorite economics phrase, all else equal, those effects would show up, but all else isn't equal, and there's just a world of other stuff going on, and historical pattern seems to be that the other stuff 
seems to swamp that. So I, I would not get very exercised about the fact that asset prices are going to come down because there's a big asset transfer uh, going on. And indeed, it may be that if you think of the concentration of wealth, it may well be that the asset prices are not going to come down because people who accumulate great wealth don't sell it. They either right. leave it to their heirs or the they, um, you know, we just saw Jeff Bezos's announcement, they, they give it to uh, their foundation and things like that. And that's why we have things like the Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, you name it, precisely because these uh, sources of great wealth did not uh, just say, well, okay, I'm hitting retirement age. I better sell this. Yeah. yeah. And so I know we're coming up on a heartbreak for you. Uh, let's just finish off here. We, a lot of these terms we talk about, as you mentioned, you know, this, we, we can anticipate probably an exacerbation of, of inequality when a lot of these technologies are ready for prime time. Some jobs are going to be even, you know, benefit even more. Many people will not be hurt by, by these trends that's obviously going to have massive ramifications for our politics. So briefly, if you can sort of prognosticate how you think the political situation might end up, you know, given you know, other historical examples when we had these like rapid changes and, uh, and then finish off with what gives you most hope and what gives you most worry? Well, I think you, I think you've hit it. And this is something I've been worrying about for a long time. And I don't, frankly, I don't think we have to look very far ahead. I think we're there. If you look at the state of American politics now, you are seeing, I believe, the effects of this widening inequality, the stagnation of living standards for mm -hmm. at least half or more of the American population. The GDP has been growing. Okay, that's fine. <clears throat> but because of the uh, imperfect distribution of the fruits of that growth, a very large uh, part of the American population has had a stagnating living standard. And as I uh, showed in some detail in another one of my books, you were nice enough to mention my recent one on religion and the rise of capitalism, but the one before that was called The Moral Co Consequences of Economic Growth. And I was using the word moral in a self-consciously 18th century um, way to refer to our politics and our social fabric, uh, the moral consequences of economic growth tend to be positive. The moral consequences of economic stagnation tend to be things that we want to avoid. And right. these are patterns that are very clearly visible. And so when they occur, they are not just pathologies, they are the predictable pathologies that show up any time a large part of a country's population loses a sense of forward motion in its standard of living. And I think we're there. And I think our politics now, I'm sorry to say, are reflecting precisely that. Yeah. And there's unfortunately reason to believe it may get worse, at least in that short to medium term. So, Professor, thanks so much. Now you got to run. Is there any place where uh, people can find more about you uh, or your work? Uh, well, again, uh, there. Uh, uh, my publisher is uh, Alfred Knopf, which is, as the uh, publishing industry goes, of course, uh, everything is owned by everything. So uh, uh, Knopf is a part of Random House. Random House is a part of Penguin Random House. Penguin Random House is owned by something else. But uh, 
I think if they simply uh, Google my name and Harvard University, they'll get all of the, they will get more information than they could possibly want to have. <laughs> I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Thanks very much. And lots of good luck to you. I enjoyed talking with you. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.